Thanks for downloading show 62 of the C-Suite podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith. I'm uh, recording this episode on location at the Century Club, um, which is a members club in Theatreland in the heart of Soho, London. And the reason we're here is because we've just attended an intimate launch event of the uh, latest Content State of Mind report, uh, which reveals the findings of the Big Shot's annual consumer survey on attitudes to branded content, the channels uh, that are dominating, and which techniques are working. And I'm thrilled to say that we're joined by two of the panel members uh, from this morning's event. Uh, so firstly, it's a uh, Welcome back to the show to the Big Shots Managing Director, James Erskine. James was a guest way back on show 12, where we talked about the influence of uh, YouTubers and social talent, um, which is, was incredibly two years ago, James. can't believe that. That is a long time. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, so good to have you back. Um, and joining James on the show is Hannah Bourne, Marketing Director for Children's at Penguin Random House UK. So thanks both of you for joining the show. James, before we delve into some of the findings of your research and have a wider chat about uh, mm. branding content in general, uh, can you give us a quick overview of what you were hoping to achieve from uh, this report and what for you was the key takeout from it? Um, the overview as to why we do it first. So we started doing it um, in about 2014 and it was purely to get headlines for the big shot, I'll be honest. So it was to try and get us in marketing week, <laughs> try and get us in Forbes. It worked and we're all very happy. But then we kind of thought that we've worked with the research business. We've kind of got this insight into how consumers are reacting to content in the digital space. And guess what? We actually started to use it. So we've kept it rolling. Um, we did it a couple of times in the first two years. We now do it every quarter. And we, we splice and dice the data by various different demographics, depending, frankly, on which pitches or which clients we're working with most closely at the time. So we've had a separate one for mums and children. So that works for us. And we use it now, yes, to still get headlines, but also to inform our thinking in the sort of stuff that we make for the brands that we work with. Sure. And, and as I said, we'll go into a bit more depth mm. of it you know, during the, during the podcast. But What's the big takeout for you then? Big it? takeout was, I suppose, how different demographics and different ages react to different kinds of content in different ways. So okay. almost the real practical use of the stuff at the end. So so some everybody likes a product demonstration video. Some people like it more for various different sectors. So not earth shattering, but women like cosmetic product demonstrations more than men, but then they like it to make that final purchase decision. Sure. So it's the practical that excited me most. Okay, all right. Well, as I said, we'll come on to some of the more detail um, shortly. Uh, Hannah, you've had 12 years working in book marketing, so I'm guessing things have changed a little in terms of content marketing in, in that time. I assume for a brand like Penguin, you, you may have a different approach given that creating content is actually what you guys do for a living. Yeah, we definitely, we're in the incredibly lucky position to to have an awful lot of content on hand. Uh, and so I think that um, for me, the biggest sort of development throughout my career has been the movement from uh, more kind of shouty announcement-led marketing into more kind of conversational, engaging marketing. I can remember back at the beginning of my career working on the most beautiful outdoor advertising posters it, months and months backwards and forwards between me and the marketing director and the editorial team. And it was so stunning and I've still got it around somewhere. But you just can't do that anymore. You can't just be um, projecting buy, buy, buy and hoping that people are going to come with you on that journey. And I think that um, for me, the interesting thing around social influencers, um, James and I 
did that for me. It was the first time. Many six we were we were talking earlier six years ago, mm. um, and we worked with Jim Chapman, who I'm sure a lot of people are very familiar with. But we were uh, at that point talking about a matter of hundreds of pounds for a video versus the thousands and tens of thousands of pounds that it is now but what really struck me about that experience from the very beginning was the trust and the authenticity so the authenticity of Jim himself who adored the book and was absolutely phenomenal about communicating it in the best possible way to his audience and then in terms of the trust that his audience had in him they believed in what he was doing and they were interested in what he was interested in so I think that's that kind of has been a bit of a game changer in terms of conversation driver versus so proper level of engagement versus non-stop shouting the word by me <laughs> yeah do, do you think other brands need to think like a publisher like like yourselves and, and if so you know where do they need to start I, I think they do and I think a lot of them already are in fact um, and I think it's uh, it's about adding value to any individual conversation and meeting that need in your audience and in fact we were touching on this earlier as well there was um, it's no there's no point in you if you're a financial services trying to make some video that is just going to make everyone laugh because you probably will get sharing out of that because you two things that are likely to get shared are things that make you laugh or things that make you jump so it might very well get shared but is it actually going to be relevant to the audience that you're trying to reach potentially not so what you need to do is you need to identify who your key target market is who the perfect member of your audience is you need to figure out what they need what they're missing in their lives and what you can do as a brand what you can contribute to that conversation because that's how the level of engagement engagement will actually up and that will result in better brand awareness and better sales yeah so i just think on brands being a publisher there are some pitfalls with that so hannah's already touched upon relevance and and every brand's desire to make people laugh and and that's kind of the negative so talking about things that aren't core to the brand proposition or even to the conversations they're having with the wider marketing objectives so don't go rogue just because it's content (laughs) don't go rogue just because you're experimenting but the key things and the good points of acting like a publisher are how to keep a conversation going. So how are you moving your audience, your customers or potential customers to the next stage in their decision-making process? So I was saying on the panel, weirdly, the longest film that we've made since I've been at the Big Shot, and I've been there for seven years maybe, is for a product demonstration video for a respirator. Christ, you can get more boring. (laughs) But the reason being because you've got that many checks and balances in place on their way to viewing that film that you know that they're pretty bloody interested. So, and it's about understanding which content on the way to making those decisions is needed. Sure. Um, Hannah, obviously, your books for kids uh, in the in the area that that you look after in in your company. So that's from naught to eighteen, I guess. So and and grown up kids too. And grown up kids, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. But so I guess your campaigns will target the parents, obviously, of those, Mm -hmm. or or, or naturally, they're going to target the parents of those younger kids too. I'm assuming you're, you're using you know loads of different forms of content uh, marketing. Can can you talk us through some of the formats and the channels that are working well for you, and how you're using those different types of content for the different age groups um, and obviously the different audiences? So I think that it's always about your kind of your consumer journey. So you start again with your audience. So you're going to hear me say that a lot because that's basically what I'm always trying to get me and my entire team to do. And then you are trying to um, find where they. Um, so you need to find where they are and when they're going to be there. But then also when they're in the right frame of mind to hear from you so for example we know that mums spend an awful lot of time hanging out on mums net they engage in an awful lot of forums they listen to other mums they want advice from other mums so if you're trying to communicate 
uh, if you've got a book that's very good for helping babies get to sleep, for example, you want to be on Mumsnet. You know mums are there, but you don't want to be on Mumsnet in a forum where they're discussing potty training or in a forum where they're discussing how to get your children to eat their vegetables. You need to make sure that you are in the right place. And at that point, you also have to be adding value to the conversation. So you can't just be like, oh, buy this book because it'll help your child get to sleep. It's We've spoken to all of these mums. We know this helps your child get to sleep. Engage them with the actual conversation. So actually move them forward. And I think that, you know, there are definitely any brand will tell you there are channels that work better for different age ranges so um, it's also in James's in the uh, in the content state of mind research that um, Facebook is somewhere that works particularly well for uh, the older generation so in terms of when we're targeting parents and grandparents that's definitely one of our primary channels but it's it's very much a case of identifying what you're trying to say about which book at which point so another good example would be um, a couple of years ago we were working for the 100 and 50th anniversary of Beatrix Potter we were working on uh, these beautiful design editions of some of the original Beatrix Potter stories so we knew that these were going to appeal to in a kind of nostalgic way to family audiences who are into brands like Jules and Bowden so we ended up working with an Instagrammer called uh, Xantha B who we chose because we knew that um, that kind of beautiful nostalgic feel look and feel was what she did incredibly well we knew that she resonated with that family audience who were interested in these other kind of design-led brands design-led family brands as well so like Jules and like Bowdoin and so she created the most beautiful lifestyle photography featuring the books plus these really gorgeous stop-motion animations and we saw unbelievably brilliant reaction to that and we've also been having quite a lot of fun recently with podcasts for different audiences so good to know good to know (laughs) on a podcast So uh, for uh, one of our books called The Rabbit Who Wants to Fall Asleep, we actually we knew that the audio content was incredibly strong from the, it was the second book in, from, a, from one author. And we knew that the audio book had delivered incredibly well in the first time. So we wanted to be able to really kind of concentrate on that. So we broke the audio content down and worked with a podcaster called Fritha Quinn, Tiger Lily Quinn. And she broke it into four week podcast series for new, particularly targeting new parents of very young children who were struggling to get them to sleep. And the result there was that our audio book outsold our physical book, which basically anyone in publishing will tell you never happens so that was you know uh, really exciting that's really interesting mm. actually uh james hannah, hannah referenced um obviously the report and talking about the, the different channels there can you go into a bit more detail in terms of which ones came out top in terms of seeing content and, and what was viewed positively mm. but also you know what's being crucially recalled by the audience of course well? yeah so we, we we saw that 70 percent cited facebook as by far the most popular so as 70 percent saw positive content which was highly recalled and interestingly across all demographics snapchat came out least across social networks was 16%. So kind of no surprises there. The other thing is that when you look for a much younger audience, so 16 to 34s, Instagram rose from third place to second place. So again, you'll start seeing how different audiences are reacting to various different social media. So yeah, it's it's spliced and diced by different data. The other thing is, as you get older, Twitter takes on more of an importance. So I suppose in this instance, it's confirming all of our prejudices, all of our thinking, but it's nice to see real research yeah. backing it up mm. well on, on facebook in particular and, and obviously specifically for brands that are trying to reach the audiences you know through through um the facebook 
feed. Um, you've been recently interviewed for a couple of TV news items talking about the changes to Facebook's algorithm yeah. um, and the impact that they you know, may have had on, on the brands that are creating those, those content and, uh, and, as I said, trying to reach their audiences. Do you want to just give a, an overview of, of that whole issue in, in, in the context of what we're discussing now? Yeah, sure. So I'm kind of like a superhero in that I have two jobs, two identities. I also work for an influencer marketing business called Social Circle. So we're kind of hearing the Facebook algorithm changes from both sides of the story from the brand side and the creator stroke publisher in this instance. Broadly, the algorithm changes mean that when I log on to my Facebook, I'll see a hell of a lot less Guardian and a hell of a lot more of my brothers or cousins. That's effectively it. Mark Zuckerberg has said more meaningful connections. So that's kind of his New Year's resolution to make Facebook a better place. What that means for brands, I might be, being really honest, I might be slightly out of step with the market here because... I actually think what this means, I'm, I'm quite a cynic in this respect, I think it's a way for Facebook to make more money and to, to be able to charge a premium for their ad products because that's not changing at all. It just means that they're going to be less ad-promoted posts yeah. on so, the page. So all those brands that said, like us on Facebook, they're right. now going to have to pay to talk to all those people. Well, they've had to anyway. Yes, really, but, but even, more so. even more so because yeah. there are less chances. For creators, it's really interesting because an algorithm change on Facebook, an algorithm change on YouTube, which has also happened over the last couple of weeks for the creator economy which my the social circle business I work for strives to to power it's a really huge change because it means that a revenue stream is being cut off overnight so yes that's that's broadly the effect that it could and we will start to see happening okay so. okay well I want to dig uh, deep into this whole area of uh, social influencers which we will do right after this quick break you're listening to the c-suite podcast to listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csweeppodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my guests, James Erskine and Hannah Bourne, and uh, we are discussing all things branded content. Uh, now, James, a big part of your business, as you mentioned just before the break, is helping brands with uh, social influencers. And of course, the previous podcast that we recorded together uh, was with another Hannah, actually. Um, <laughs> so that was YouTuber Hannah Witten, um, who was great value. And so if any uh, listeners want to delve into the archives, um, as I said at the top of the show, that was episode 12 of the series. Um, but this whole discussion is quite timely because we're recording this podcast at the end of a week when the news has included a story of how an owner of a hotel in Dublin, uh, so the guy's name is Paul Stenson, uh, shared on social media his response to a UK-based social media influencer, and her name was Elle Darby, and it, and it was all after she approached the hotel for a possible collaboration, um, which she did actually put in her, uh, uh, I believe, in her initial approach, where she wanted to feature them in her YouTube and Instagram channel in return for basically a free stay. Now, Stenson didn't take kindly to that request. He sub subsequently banned all bloggers from his business. And to be honest, the whole sort of back and forth on, on social media, it's all got a bit petty. Mm. Um, although, to be fair to both parties, they've ended up with plenty of exposure. Yeah. Um, you know, granted a mix of positive and, and negative attitudes to both. When I looked at her, you know, Ella's initial approach, I was thinking perhaps the line about, and she wrote this thing, she said, last year I worked with Orlando, Florida, and it's been amazing for them, which mm. <laughs> means absolutely nothing without, you know, any further information. <laughs> 
So I was just wondering, was that, a, you know, or, or that probably was a bit naive in the way she's written it, but what's your take on this whole saga? Because in the industry mm. that we're in, in terms of social media influencers, looking at that, it's just, you know, it's just been everything that everyone's been talking about for the last week. Yeah, it's a fascinating case. So I, first of all, I should declare an interest because I went to Orlando, Florida last year, not as a result of seeing <laughs> that lady's content. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah. Amazing. That's the first thing to say. So there were other things that some people did, but, and they, that was, was not the reason. So look, lots of opinions. If somebody was setting up a newspaper, a, a, let's be honest, you know, a young person was set, being entrepreneurial and setting up a newspaper and had rung that hotel owner to charge for some advertising, would he have given the vitriol that he gave to that young entrepreneurial mm. woman? That's the first thing to say. To exchange goods and services is as old as time itself, right? Mm, exactly. So that's the first thing to say. She's an up and coming. I'll be really honest, and look, I'm lucky because I work for Social Circle. We mm -hmm. have a cost per weighted engagement calculator to what everybody's <laughs> worth. I think five nights is probably a bit punchy. Mm. So that's the first thing to say. So enter into a negotiation don't go public on it if you're the uh, if you're the owner the other thing on the petty squabbles and it's probably worth saying just because the other thing is we talk to lots of creators lots of youtubers lots of is actually the reason why that is such a desirable place to say stay in ireland is because there's a, a youtuber family called the sacconi jolies that oh. stay there all the time <laughs> so and we really the real proof will be when the sacconi jolies get banned from staying right. there because mm. they're influencers too and the other thing that I really believe in is, great, if he thinks that he can generate all of the business, run at 100% capacity by his local press ads, that's fine. But there's no reason to stop people approaching him offering a new way of marketing. Exactly. Which, by the way, isn't that new, because <laughs> the Sacconi Jellies are featuring him in all of their content. Mm. So lots and lots of pettiness. Um, broadly, I think that if... Um, it. It does say that micro-influencers don't know their worth. It's funny. Our cost-per-weighted engagement calculator to now be serious about it is a great way for, and we believe in this, helping young um, entrepreneurial influencers, creators, to assess their worth and to actually know what they should be asking for. That's a huge part. Um, the other bit, actually, is we use it to beat agents over the head when they are out of step with the market. <laughs> so it works twice for us. Sure. I mean, brands have been negotiating with influencers for a very long time. Um, Hannah and I worked on a campaign years ago right yeah. so we've yeah i don't know whether we've we've had books that influencers have metaphorically given back because they mm. don't want to work on them so really good ones mm. too i was really surprised yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what's your take hannah on, on, on this whole uh, yeah. saga okay i uh, my first initial reaction was wow what an overreaction yeah. to, to sort of from everybody because i can understand why his overreaction sparked a sparked that kind of communication i mean he's, um, he's from what i've read and seen he's quite clever at using social media well, himself. Well, now, this is what I think is quite interesting because I think he's misunderstood the value of what the conversation that was happening because James reminded me earlier that in this situation I'm the... I would be the hotel owner. Yep. So, um, and the, and the, his his example is a perfect example of my attitude in that situation was that a uh, a, bl a blogger or a vlogger came to us and said, actually, I don't like this book, and we were like, great, move on, the, because the authenticity of that, exactly what I said before, authenticity and trust, that's absolutely vital. However, I think the level that he's misunderstood is how much, and this comes out of the content state of mind research as well, how much the followers of these influencers consider them personal friends. 
friends. And if you had gone to a hotel and had a horrible experience with the manager and came home and told your friends, your friends would never go there. So I think that he's he's misunderstood the transactional nature of the conversation that he's having. And he's lent into all, no such thing as bad publicity. But he's going, I think... I think that there is such thing as bad publicity, actually, and this yeah. is a piece of bad publicity for okay. him. Okay, James, following on from this this uh, this whole issue, and, and in fact, Hannah just touched on it there. What, what's the level of trust shown to social influencers, according to your report? Then it's it's funny because it again changes by demographic, and also we asked, for the most part in the research, we asked questions around brand brands content, but with influencers, we wanted to take a step further, and we asked, we actually asked the question because we thought it would be more engaging. Would you talk to influencers or would you would you think influencers can help with personal problems specifically relationship advice and around 20 percent of millennials said yes so that's a fifth of millennials actually beyond a brand's message think yes they can sort out a personal problem that falls to about 11 percent when you're looking at 55 pluses so again it's interesting to see the cynicism rise as the age rises in that instance we find them a remarkably effective tool. I was asked um, on the panel at the end about kind of trends over the next year. And one of the big trends, I think, is we'll start, and I know everybody uses the word interchangeably. We use the word influencer to marketing people and creators to YouTubers. But I actually think we're going to start seeing a shift in seeing creators as creators. So creating engaging content to be used in marketing materials. So, so yeah, it's a fascinating relationship. Okay. Well, it's, it's not obviously not all about um, social impact. Influencers. So what I wanted to ask you is whether or not you could talk through any content marketing campaigns that you've recently worked on that involves, let's call it a more traditional mm-hmm. media owner, although almost all of them obviously have a, a, an online or digital presence. So uh, Hannah, let's, let's come to you on this one. Uh, so I'd just start with our camp, like social influencers form an incredibly important part of the full marketing mix, but no campaign can be solely led by social and that's social or digital or print or anything so uh, mostly we try to make sure that we are um, identifying our audience and then trying to hit them wherever they are across all of the different media mixes Um, we've had some really great fun with podcasts uh, uh, recently as I've already mentioned Um, also radio we um, I think that with the kind of rise of digital radio what that's allowed to happen is the kind of growth of sort of more niche radio stations and we use um, relatively frequently one called fun kids radio Um, they're an absolutely fantastic Way to reach parents and kids together so you get that kind of dual impact they're growing pretty much constantly and they're delivering millions of impacts per campaign um, but the key to me is how creative they are around it so um, you know they we're pinpointing our audience and then we're, we you know they're doing straight ads that like the more traditional straight radio advertising presenter leg campaigns they're experimenting with live as well and online engagement across kind of newsletter social and website competitions and things like that is phenomenal so I've, we're seeing huge um, um, engagement across that and as ever I would actually say video um, and what I think is interesting is how how we how we're trying to experiment with different types of video so um, this autumn we had uh, Jeff Kinney's Diary of a Wimpy Kid new novel and we did video advertising featuring real kids and our, and then that was used as part of our Disney sponsorship um, which we then also did kind of social advertising around that so that you could get because the whole things with play, with with channels like Disney is that you know that you're getting the dual impact there as well except mum and dad are probably sat on the sofa with their phones out so if you're doing that kind of second screen focused targeting as well then you're managing to hit using like a traditional a more traditional media but hooked in with new media so that it's all kind of connected together and what we were trying to really show there was how much kids how hilarious kids find Diary of a Wimpy Kid because we wanted to show parents that that's what 
they will get if they buy this book. Uh, and we also, for Tom Fletcher's Christmasaurus, we did some videos of some kids listening because it was a musical edition, which is a, a first. Um, so it has had all of the songs inspired by the, um, inspired by the book featured in a CD in the book so we wanted to show kids reacting to the music because the music was just phenomenal so we did videos showing that kind of reaction and that's kind of trying to trigger that emotional response and that campaign was entirely for Facebook but it was a much more traditional medium if you like very good James yeah we've seen a a, a rise in experiential and and branded event solutions to to a couple of briefs on a small scale we worked for Little Tiger Press recently where we scared people on the streets of Shoreditch with some uh, some dolls that were scary in this YA novel so again you start with the experiential piece and you kind of build out from that so making social content which if there can be such a thing as traditional new media wherever (laughs) that means but anyway we used it in Facebook ads YouTube ads places like that uh, we also created a zone at Kidzania working alongside Team Penguin Random oh, House for the Creekers yeah. that was amazing yeah. having recently been myself I should have been to the opening but I'm not that good a client man so there you go <laughs> but it was an amazing experience so so experientials really worked we've also worked in outdoor and trying to make outdoor more engaging mm. so I think Hannah made a really good point on the panel, which I will not do. I will not express it as an, an articulate way as she did. But basically, what paid social does is it gives you a backbone of a campaign. But you can almost use that backbone of a campaign as a safety net. So it allows you to experiment almost above that, whether that's creating content that you wouldn't normally make or whether that's using other parts into the mix. Because you know paid social is going to be effective at reaching the end audiences. Mm-hmm. The one other thing that I'd say is that we've experimented... Well, we've got animators in-house, so we're lucky, but animation to communicate an emotional thing. So we work for, you know, Forrester's Financial Selling Children's Isis. We've worked for Tommy's, the charity, um, raising awareness of their Count the Kicks campaign. Right. So, yeah... Things the animation thing is is kind of traditional in that respect. Yeah. So, and, and, and what about in terms of measuring the success of, of all this? And, and and I'm also thinking about the fact that you know there's going to be certain things that we now are going to get harder certainly uh, or can and can't do with data collection. You mm-hmm. know, obviously with the introduction of uh, GDPR. So how's that going to affect what you're doing with these campaigns? Okay, so to to start with measurability I think that um, we basically measure absolutely everything anything that you can possibly measure we measure but I think that the way that's kind of the way that, that you choose to measure is evolving is in the kind of the value that you put against specific metrics so whilst you know four or five years ago if you were making a book trailer you were looking for a number of views so did you get 45, 50, 60,000 views now you're not really looking for that you're looking for the level of conversation that happens underneath the trailer on YouTube and also the kind of the positive and negative interaction you get with your little thumbs up signals so I think that there's an element there Um, and I also think that um, James has kind of stolen what else I was going to say there which is that that giving you because you have so much trackability it really gives you freedom to be brave and in fact I'm incredibly proud of our track record when it comes to innovation at Penguin Random House Children's Books I'm always trying to get the team to be brave about what they're doing but you can do that you have the freedom to do that when you've got some really clear metrics about the other part of your campaign so it kind of opens up possibilities so then coming on to the very thorny issue of GDPR I think I'm I'm by no means a complete GDPR expert 
we always try to be the absolute gold standard. I mean, the issue really is around collecting of children's data. So, you know, there are things that an adult brand or an adult publisher can do that you can't do with children. And it's things like retargeting because you're not allowed to hound a child around the Internet. Um, but you're also not allowed to take any kind of information from them, any identifying information from them that um, you don't need, 100% need. So you can't take their address if you're not actually going to physically post them something. And you're not allowed to take any identifying information full stop without parental consent and at the minute we have passive parental consent so when you go to sign up to a newsletter you put in your email address you're 13 it's a tick box that says does your mum say it's okay for you to join this newsletter you don't even check you ticket you move on that's not going to be good enough anymore it's going to have to be an active consent model going forward and we're in the process of enacting that across the entirety of our portfolio um, I can come in on GDPR because I've, I've had to become an expert. With my social circle hat on, we have a data business, effectively, which is the data of 50,000 influencers globally. And we, we can't now show people that data because they've got to opt in in order for us to show it. So right now, we are authenticating, getting the influencers to go through that data to get them to tick the boxes and opt in to show that data. So that's happening right now. So we've had to become experts in mm. this GDPR space. To Hannah's point, the sharks have kind of gone in terms of GDPR, so there's no auto-ticking boxes anymore, mm. but actually, broadly, in the parents and children space, they're going to have to be even better. Mm. Measurability, just very quickly on that point, because again, I think Hannah's articulated this really well, but just there was a point that came out on the panel with you can have the biggest spreadsheet in the world, but if you don't have a clue what it means, mm. it's pointless. There has to be a narrative to yeah. data, yeah. and that's often the biggest thing. You can have click-through rates, drop-off rates, but if it's not delivering I broadly kind of look at content as doing two things and I think actually if you're not doing if you're trying to do both you're doing too much and if you're not doing one then stop making that piece of content one are you moving people somewhere to the next stage in the purchasing cycle or to to click through to buy the thing two are you enriching where they already are if you're either enriching or moving them on you're doing something right so that's kind of it Okay, so uh, finally on this topic, what's the next big thing our listeners should be uh, looking to learn more about when it comes to content marketing? So Hannah, let's uh, go with you first. Uh, so my favourite thing at the minute that I've really got my eye on is conversational technology. So that's um, the next level of Siri. So it's Alexa, Echo, the Echo Dot, and um, like Google Home and all of those. And I think what's really exciting about it is that we're in the such early stages. So um, they're just, at the minute, the developers, Google, um, Alexa, up the Amazon team are just having fun. So they're setting, they're making them. It's it's a basically one long gag. If you can, there's tons of things you can say to Alexa that will make her tell you a joke or respond in a you know hilarious way. And that's so much fun, and everyone's really loving it and they're sharing it. But there's such opportunity for the next step um, around taking content and providing it to um, consumers in a new way and uh, meeting a need because that always it, for me it always come back, comes back to the audience and the need and you know it's it's things like um, can you use cookery content on uh, the Alexa Echo Dots so that she can take you step by step through a Jamie Oliver recipe or can you ask Alexa to play your child nursery rhymes when they're going to sleep and things like that and I think that it's just the, it, we're in the nascent stages and that's what's so, so exciting about it And James for you? Um, it may sound hackneyed, but this year I think it might actually happen. Call it structured, call it modular, call it chapterized, call it what you want. But I think the way of using content to move people throughout a, um, a decision-making process. So 
simple things. We're working with influencer-based content to communicate a finance brand's messages right now. What they're not doing is product explainers in their content, because that would be really boring. <laughs> but they are moving the audience through to the finance brand's website, where they're then explaining what the product does once they're there. So that kind of understanding of the purchase journey. But then guess what? Now we're in an age where there's data to back that up, to underlay how you're moving people along. Uh, well, James Erskine and Hannah Bourne, thanks for joining the podcast. Um, that's it for another episode. Uh, don't forget you can listen to all previous shows of the uh, C-Suite podcast at the website. So that's csuitepodcast.com. And there's links there to subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn and Stitcher. Um, and of course, if you're on iTunes, please do give us a positive rating and review as all those uh, help us up the charts and uh, means more people get to hear us. If you want to join in the discussion about today's show or any previous shows, um, of course, you can do that on our Facebook page and Twitter feed, which are all linked from the uh, website website as well and if you want to contact me to get involved in the series in any way then you can do that via the contact form on the site or get hold of me on twitter using at russ goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye